Well, we come now to our time around the Word of God, and you would have seen in the bulletin that uh, we're still back, well, one, back in Hebrews, but back to uh, a series that we began a few weeks ago. This is part four of looking at um, the images uh, and the titles that the writer of Hebrews gives us uh, in wanting to help us understand who Jesus is and, and more particularly what he's done. Uh, this is the, the book of Hebrews as a whole. If you, We've been at this for a long time now. Uh, in fact, we're at the end of chapter 6, and before we go into chapter 7, we just thought we'd take a little bit of an excursion and, and, and look at these images. Because uh, you'll remember that the book of Hebrews was written in one sense, in a very real sense, uh, to Jewish Christians who were waffling in their faith, who were backsliding, perhaps on the brink of apostasy, and they needed some encouragement, they needed some faith, their faith being strengthened. And so what do you do if you are the pastor? What do you do if you're the biblical counselor? And knowing somebody that needs their faith strengthened, you just pat them on the back and say, go. Um, that might help. But really what they need is a... Actually, a better word, a vision of Christ. Uh, they need the veil pulled back so that they can see Christ in all his glory, in all his majesty, in all his supremacy. Looking at Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith, looking at Christ, who, as we've been learning, is our pioneer, uh, looking at Christ, who is our champion, uh, looking at Christ, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, um, Everything else kind of dissipates around us when we look upon him. And that's the, the object of the writer of Hebrews. He wants to, to have you look at Christ because in looking at Christ, that becomes the means of grace for you to keep pressing on. And, and there's a lot of obstacles in this world. There's a lot of obstacles back then. They were facing persecution. They were facing uh, pressure from family. And there's still persecution and pressure from family today with a whole lot of other things. You've got to deal with yourself and your flesh, but um, all in all, whatever the obstacle is, uh, the goal uh, is to look at Christ. And so one of the ways that the writer of Hebrews does that is obviously being polemical with Judaism, saying that he's better than, better than, better than, he's better than Moses, he's better than Joshua, better than the high priest. But he's also, that is the writer of Hebrews, is helping us understand exactly who he is and what he's done through metaphor. Through pictures, word pictures. Um, as we know, God stoops down to us and speaks our language and speaking our language so we get it. Uh, the, the language comes through metaphors. And uh, as we've been looking at, uh, as I've counted them up, there's about 13 of them here in the book of Hebrews. Again, they're in your bulletin if you want to follow along. This is week four going through them, and we've been taking our time a, a bit because, one, I've been encouraged by you guys how much you've appreciated uh, looking at these. And, and two, they aren't metaphors, images that we can just quickly uh, skate through. They need some development and some unpacking. And so we've been doing that. Uh, this past week I was reading a book called Paul's Metaphors. That's the title of the book. Paul's Metaphors. It came out, I don't know, about 20 years ago. It was written by an Australian guy. I think he was the vice principal of uh, Ridley College in Melbourne uh, back when he wrote it. I don't, the name doesn't sound familiar, and I forgot to ask Brett who he is. Um, so I'm not sure where he is now, but it's a wonderful book. 
walking through, it's a fairly thick book too, walking through all of Paul's metaphors and all his writings and helping us understand that if you want to understand Paul's metaphors, you have to understand the first century. And that's what he does. He takes us back to the first century. Uh, and the metaphors are categorically around the life in the city, life in the country, what family life was like, what marketing was like, what banking was like. I mean, if you want to understand terms like justification or even the word doulos, slave, um, you know, the, the bema seat. I mean, all these images that come up that are related to not just who God is and not just who Christ is, but who we are in our relationship with, the, with, with God and with Christ. You might need to go back to the first century with and understand some of these metaphors. So in a real sense, that's what we're doing. Uh, and we're just doing it here in the book of Hebrews. And as you can see, I've, I've categorized the images, these, these metaphors. Uh, as you can see, there's 13 of them, and there's three categories. There's six in category one, there's five in category uh, two, and then there's uh, just two in category three, which uh, I had to have a separate category for them because they really fit into both. So let me tell you where we're up to, and that is uh, at the end of category two, and, and really the last one. But just to give us a running start to get there, let me, for the sake of everybody who might not have been here last week or the week before, um, just a quick review. And I'm going to run through this. So if you are following along or just listening, you don't have to turn to the scripture. But here are those in this first category, those titles or images that describe Jesus bringing salvation from God to man. That's how I worded it. We could probably do better. But the first one comes in Hebrews 2.11, where we learn that Jesus is the one who sanctifies. That, that's, that's a metaphor. Hebrews 2.11 reads, For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and Sister. So first of all, first metaphor we see as it relates to Jesus bringing salvation to God is that he's the sanctifier, which obviously implies that we need sanctifying. Uh, and the only one that does that is Christ. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. If you, you want to get to heaven, well, you need to be sanctified. You need to be holy. You need to be made holy. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that it is Christ and Christ alone who is the sanctifier. Secondly, in chapter 3 1, and this is probably my favorite. If you, if you were asking me which one is your favorite, Todd, and some of you have been telling me that one's my favorite, this one's my favorite. Well, coming in chapter 3, verse 1, this is my favorite for a number of reasons. And I, I won't give them all to you now, but suffice it to say, here Jesus is referred to as the apostle. You see that? Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, consider... Again, look to Christ, consider Christ. Who is he? Jesus, the apostle. And what's the apostle mean? The, the sent one. I mean, Jesus had his own disciples who then became apostles. An apostle is a sent one, uh, a missionary. My favorite translation to this is messenger. Messengers, because that, that brings up the whole metaphor of God as king sending out his messengers uh, to give us a what? What do messengers bring? A message. And that's what Christ came. He came to give us, to do the will of the Father, to speak the words of the Father, and that's exactly what he said. He says, my words are the words of my Father, the one who sent me, the one who sent me. All throughout the Gospel of John, how many times does he say, I have been sent by the Father, I came from the Father. 
He is the apostle. There were a apostles, but this is the apostle. A, a next uh, metaphor that we see, and that's just two verses later in verse 3 of Hebrews 3, is builder. Jesus is a builder. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. This takes us back to Zechariah 6, where we're told uh, that the, the branch, the Messiah, is going to come and build a building, or a, more literally a temple for the Lord. And that temple that he builds is uh, us. We are the temple. Of the Lord. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us. So who builds God's house, as it were? Well, Christ does. Christ is the builder of the house. The next one, and again, this is our review. Uh, Hebrews 5, 9, he is the source. That's the word there that we're looking at. But the source of eternal salvation. He is, he is the, uh, well, let me put it this way. If you want salvation, he is the only one you turn to. He is the source. There's not sources, like there's many ways of salvation. No, there's only one source, and that source is Christ. And, of course, I know your mind's racing to verses such as, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only name given to men under heaven by which we may be saved. The source of eternal life. And then coming into chapter 7.22, we're told that he is the guarantee, or you might have in your translation, the surety. Hebrews 7.22 says, because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. So it's one thing that God promises a covenant. It's one thing that God covenants uh, with his promise. But then Christ comes along and gives it a guarantee. And the question comes, what else do you need? What else, what more else do you need to know that your salvation is secure? He is the guarantee of a better covenant. Chapter 8, verse 2, we're told that he is a minister. A minister. He, he's the minister of a heavenly sanctuary. They were ministers of an earthly sanctuary. They were priests. Priests had a dual job to, to serve the, the temple, to guard the temple. That was the same job as Adam, back in the garden, he was to serve and to, uh, and to keep it. Well, guess what? All that is typology to Christ, who is the minister, ministering in heaven. And what is he doing there? Well, he's serving and guarding, protecting it as well. A minister. A minister. And then, probably the most well-known metaphor in all of the Old Testament, and the most wonderful metaphor that finishes up this category, and that comes at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews 13, 20, where Christ is referred to as the great shepherd of the sheep. The great shepherd of the sheep. little commentary needs to be made on that. He's not just the good shepherd, but he is the great shepherd. And shepherd in, in ancient times meant uh, ruling. He, he was a king, uh, but also it has the idea of protection, leading, Remember Psalm 23? That's, that's all typology of Christ. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. So that ends category one. Jesus bringing salvation from God to humanity. Coming into category two, again, we'll just quickly review this. The first we saw was that he was an heir. 
that takes us all the way back to Hebrews 1-2. In these last days he has spoken to us by God, his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. This takes us back primarily to David in 2 Samuel 7. There was a, a promise made to David. There was a covenant made to David. And that covenant was bound up in an eternal kingdom where the son of David would be on David's throne. And who is worthy to... To open the seals of that inheritance, well, Revelation 5 tells us there's only one, the lamb that was slain. He is worthy. And that's why the writer of Hebrews calls him the heir. He is the heir of, of all that God has and that all that God gives him, which means he is the king of kings and the lords of lords. Remember, Jesus says, all that the Father has given me, he's given me all rule and authority. And which obviously implies that if you're in Christ, whatever is his is yours as well. So you're an heir as well. God's firstborn. We talked about that last week. What's the word? What did I say? Name your firstborn son. What is it? Prototokos. I like that. Prototokos. Um, but firstborn son doesn't necessarily mean uh, chronologically your firstborn. Uh, Prototokos actually has the idea of rank. Or position. Uh, we have been predestined, uh, Paul tells us in Romans 8, uh, to be conformed to the image of his son so that he may be the prototokos amongst us. That is, we will all be like Christ, but Christ will be the more preeminent one, the superior one. So when we are told that Jesus is the firstborn, uh, there in Hebrews 1 6, Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world and all the angels worship him, what he's speaking of is Christ's supremacy. It's his rank, his position. He is the firstborn. And then on the heels of that, in chapter 2, verse 10, we're told that he's the pioneer. We talked about that last week as well. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate. And I love how he prefaces this entirely appropriate that God for whom and through whom all things exist should make the pioneer, and obviously that's a metaphor pointing to Christ, of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It was absolutely appropriate, right, just that Christ suffer. Why? Because he was made like us so that he could live like us and living like us he knew what suffering was. That was appropriate. It was just. It was right. But through the sufferings, he was what? Made perfect, which then becomes the reason why he is the pioneer. The pioneer or the champion, the captain. You might have a different translation. He's the trailblazer. He's the one that goes before us. Perfecter. Speaking of perfection, perfecter. Over in chapter 12, verse 2, he is the perfecter. Remember, it says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer. And that's the same word we just saw. But here he adds, and perfecter of our faith. What does that mean? Well, what does perfect mean? Well, perfecter in this sense means um, complete. Uh, it, it means finisher. We have a faith, but we're still running, right? Um, it needs to be completed. It needs to be finished. And so he's the perfecter of our faith. He makes sure that we actually finish it. Remember Paul says in Philippians, uh, he who began work, good work will what? Will complete it. 
He's given us the Holy Spirit as a down payment to make sure we understand that, hey, this, this, this is something that is certain. This is something that is going to happen. It's not, I, I hope it's going to happen or I wish it's going to happen. We know that it will happen. Why? Because he's the perfecter of our faith. Now, I, I assume you just sat there and listened to that because that was all review. That's what we've done in the last three weeks. So that brings us to the last metaphor in the second category, which really brings us all the way back to where we began. We circle back to Hebrews 6.20. So turn there if you're not already there. Hebrews 6.20. This is the one we began with, and this is the one we're going to, you could say, wrap up before we move to category number three. Hebrews 6.20. Let me just read it. Jesus has entered there. Uh, and I love that because if we just plop ourselves in the verse where you're wondering, well, where's there? But it will make sense in a moment. Jesus has entered there on our behalf. He did it for us. Don't miss that. But he entered there as a forerunner. He did, didn't enter there as a pioneer. That's a total different word. He didn't enter there as a firstborn, even though he is. He didn't enter there as an heir, even though he is. This is a total different metaphor to give us a whole another aspect of who God is and what he's done. Again, don't miss that. Appreciate that. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. Why? Because he becomes a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And as you know, as you can see in your Bible, from that point on, right in the chapter 7, that launches him into the whole discussion of the order of Melchizedek. Who's that? And what is that? But before we get there, let's make sure we get this. Forerunner. Forerunner. Literally, it means one who leads. The one who runs ahead. Uh, it was used of um, light infantry troops in the ancient times. It was used of uh, particular boats. Remember, I, I, I gave you that illustration a few weeks ago where uh, you, you picture a large boats coming into harbor, but there's a, a, all of us in a storm and choppy seas and waves blowing those boats back and forth. What do you need? Well, you need these smaller little boats, these forerunners to come out, grab the anchor, and pull you into the harbor so that, that you can then set anchor down and be steadfast and firm. So it referred to boats. It also referred to um, light infantry men. In other words, before the army would come, they would send out, you could say, scouts, a foreigner is like a scout, the one who, who leads, who would just probably just carry a, a javelin or a small little dagger, um, not carry a whole lot, and they'd be a few in number, and they would go and they would spy out the land. But, but the whole idea was that they would go before everybody else. That was a forerunner. The, 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 the word is prodamus, prodamus. Don't name your kid prodamus. But th that's what they were. Whether it's boats, it was a number of different usages for that for the for the word. John the Baptist was a what? 
a forerunner. He's the one that led the way for who? The Messiah that was going to come behind him. Now, in this sense, we come back to, to, to this. Jesus is our forerunner. And, and here's, here's what's interesting. In each of the illustrations of the metaphor, there's a particular emotion that's tied to that, and, and we'll see that in a moment, and that is security, stability, certainty, knowing that we have someone that's going before us. Again, that, that's, it's a picture. Now, to really get the significance of this, I, I really hope you get it. I think I got it, and, and hopefully I can l- let you in on it. You need the, the broader context here. So go back up to verse 19. And I want to break this down leading back up to verse 20, just so you get the full, the full flow and the full picture of this. In Hebrews 16.9, and just the first part of Hebrews 16.9.19, we read this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. You see that? That's, that's the Christian Standard Bible. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, zero in on that word there, or there's two words there, this hope. This is what these people needed, right? Going back to the context here. They needed their faith strengthened in order so that they could have hope. There are two different words. There's faith and there's hope, right? Hope is something that that you 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 long for that you you know you're going to have, but depending on how strong your faith is, you're either going to hold it firmly or you're going to hold it loosely. Remember over in Hebrews 11, he talks about what faith is. It's a, it's, 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 it's the thing. Faith is uh, those things uh, which we hope for that we don't see. So there's a connection between faith and hope. And here he says, you, we, we have this hope. We have this hope. Now, it's interesting. Most times in our English translations, and I, I think most translations do this, if it's not there in the original Greek, um, they'll put it in italics just to help the, the, the flow of it, to smooth it out. Now, in most of your translations, is hope there in italics? No. But guess what? In a sense, it should be because it's not in the literal Greek. It's not there. It literally reads. This is how the, the verse should read in a literal way, but this is why... You need to smooth it out with the word. Which like anger we actually have. Let me say that again. Which like anchor we continually have, but that begs the question, which what? And that's why they supply the hope so it makes sense. Now, don't lose, don't lose me here. Hope is connected to verse 18. So go back there. Just jumping into verse 18, so that through two unchangeable things, and again, we could have gone back up earlier to get the full flow, because what are those two unchangeable things? There's an illustration uh, or, or that reference to God and Abraham, how God not only promised, but then he made an oath to Abraham, right? 
He gave him his word and then he gave him an oath. So those are the two unchangeable things. And they're unchangeable because God does not, what, change. If he says something, he means something. And he secured it with an oath. So those are two unchangeable things. I mean, it's impossible for God to lie. And that's why he says, those two unchangeable things, which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, here's the whole purpose, might have strong encouragement, right? They need encouragement. You would say, well, hang on a second. God gave him his word. Isn't that enough? Isn't God's word sufficient for faith? I mean, never deviates from the truth. Yes, but nevertheless, he adds to his word. He adds to his word with what? His oath. Why does he do that? What, what, just think about that for a moment. Why does God not only give his promise, but then, hey, I'll bring an oath on top of that. And then later he gives Jesus as a surety to all that. Is it for him? Is there a, a, a question about his integrity? Is it a question about his character? No, it's, it's, it's really an issue for who? It's an issue for us. All of this is to underscore his faithfulness for sure, but the, the oath was not necessarily to confirm God's truthfulness because we know we can't lie. The oath was given for us. It was given for our sake. Why? Because we are fickle people. We're but dust. We're but fragile. We get tossed and torn from every wave and wind of doctrine. We need an anchor. We need to be steadfast. We need to be secure. What's going to help with all that? Well, it's going to know who God is. It's going to know God's word. It's going to know God's oath and God's guarantee. Again, the whole point is that it comes as what? A strong encouragement. Isn't that good? This is what those folks need. Perhaps that's what you need. You need a strong encouragement. And so the idea here is that God's word is sure. God's word is powerful. God's word is unchangeable. Which then, taken up upon faith, should... Now think about this. What's the whole point? If you believe that, if, if, if by faith you believe God said it, I believe it. Remember, that's Abraham. Abraham believed God. Didn't believe that there was a God. No, he believed in God's promises. He believed, if, I mean, look, don't have time. Go back to Genesis 15. Look at the whole flow. Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. He becomes the paradigm of faith throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. Why? Because he took God at his word. That's what believing in. He just threw himself at God. He was 90-something years old. God says, you're going to have a kid. And he says, I believe you. That's faith. And here, same idea. And we understand that God's word is sure, that God's word is powerful, uh, that he's faithful and immutable. All of that means that when it comes to our faith, our faith should absolutely remove any what? Uncertainty, any discouragement, or any doubt. Now, that might take some work. You might have to chew over that. You might have to struggle over that, but that's the end goal, that you would have strong encouragement. In fact, he says here, to seize the hope set before us. Do you see that? The, the idea there is strongly clinging to. This is a strong encouragement that you would strongly cling to. You would see something. And what is it? The hope. 
again, we're, we're getting the flow here of where hope is going to come in and connect with Forerunner. Holding fast is the idea. Same word, by the way, back in chapter 4, verse 14, where you remember he says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, do what? Let us hold fast to our confessions. Cling to it. Knowing who Christ is, knowing what he's done, cling to it. Hold fast. By the word, this, this, this idea of um, seizing the hope that's set before us, uh, in the Greek, it, it indicates a decisive act. Do it now. That's, that's the point. Seize now the hope that's set, that's set before us. Hold firmly now to the hope that, sets, that is set before us. Now, that's key. Again, don't, don't lose me here. That's key. Now, why is that key? Well, that's key because it tells me that hope then has both a present and a future aspect. Remember what hope is. What is hope? It's not a hope so or, you know, some kind of a wish. Hope, biblically defined, is a desire for some future good with the expectation of attaining it at the moment. That's, that's why it's in the, the tense that it is. It has both a present and a future implication. In other words, listen, let me put it simple for you. Hope is confident expectancy. You catch that? What is hope? Hope is confidence, strong encouragement, stability, certainty, but ultimately getting it, expectancy. Let me read you what R.C. Sproul says about hope. And he actually ties it into these verses. Hope, he says, is called the anchor of the soul. That's verse 19. Why? Because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. No, rather, it is that which latches on to the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made, end quote. What do we have as Christians? Hope. What do we need? Faith. Faith in what? Faith to believe in that hope. Now, where does it all come together? Well, again, go back to verse 19. We have this hope. And what is that hope here? Now, here's a metaphor. Not a metaphor of Jesus. It's a metaphor for hope. We have this hope as an anchor. You see that? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. Now, again, you guys know what an anchor is. You ever been out on a boat? If it's a choppy sea, uh, Tommy, uh, we hadn't heard from him for a week, and we, we heard that the, he was in the middle of the Gulf of Alaska, that it was choppy, it was stormy, and so they had to set anchor down and not move until the storm passed. So in the midst of storms, in the midst of the storms of life, or just in the midst of life, this hope becomes an anchor. Again, the picture or the feeling, whatever you want to call it, is stability, certainty. 
We have this hope as an anchor for the hope, for, for the soul. Now, remember, there in verse 19, it's, the, it, it's there in verse 18, but it's not there in verse 19. It's just implied. And the anchor, of course, refers back to the hope. And by the way, I just said it, but let me make sure you get it. Jesus is not the anchor. Hope is the anchor, right? Is Jesus, can we call Jesus an anchor? Sure we can. But that's not what he's talking about here. Jesus is the forerunner. Hope is the anchor. And hope, generated by faith in the gospel, enables the believer to stand firm in the face of temptation, the, uh, the stand firm in the face of calamities, and, of course, the storms. And that is his point. Let me say that again, just so, so we're, we're all together as we move forward. Hope, he's talking quite a bit about hope. He talks about hope in verse 18. He brings it into verse 19, and he wants to make sure that they understand that hope, they have this great hope. God promised it. God uh, covenanted it. And then we saw earlier that, Jesus comes and becomes the, uh, the, uh, the guarantee of this hope, this better covenant. And so for us, this hope, which is generated by faith, enables us to stand firm. And that's the point. Remember back in Hebrews 2, he uses another nautical reference to those who kind of drift out to sea. Starts out missing church, starts out missing out on their prayer life, misses, begins uh, in their Bible reading, and they just start. The anchor's pulled up, and when there's nothing holding you down, you, the waves just kind of carry you out to sea, and before you know it, you're out there, nowhere near land. That's what happens when you don't hold fast, when you don't undergird yourself. Don't anchor yourself to the means of grace which God has given you. That's why he says, pay attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away. And that's back in Hebrews 2. And you come here into Hebrews 6, he's, he's on that same theme. In fact, it's the same theme as you over and over, but said different, different ways throughout the book of Hebrews. We all face temptations. We all face calamities. We all face storms. What is going to hold us down so we're not just blown away? Well, an anchor does that. And what is that anchor? Hope. Hope. This is his point. Listen. The sworn promises of God and the faithfulness of God serve as the anchor to calm all our fears in the storms of life. Remember back in the early church, I think I've said this before, back in the early church, the, the anchor was a symbol that was used. It was you know, painted on the walls of a church. Uh, still today, a lot of churches uses the, use the anchor as their church logo. Why? why? What was an anchor uh, revealed? Anchor points to stability. An anchor points to security. It points to hope. And then he says, you see, a hope that is what? A hope that is firm. That's the point. A hope that is firm. Uh, the word firm can be translated as sure, safe, unshakable, steady, immovable. Uh, underneath it, it describes a state of knowledge. A hope that isn't a feeling 
Now, you might have some kind of a visceral uh, connection to it, but primarily the hope is something that you know. That's why you meditate on it. That's why you chew on it. That's why it takes all these chapters to lay it out so that you get it. That's why he gives these metaphors so that you understand it. Put it another way, hope is based on what? Truth. Just to say it as it is. And notice he also then adds, it's firm and thus secure or steadfast. In other words, it, it, it's something you know, but it's something you know with certainty. It, it's secure because it's referring to something that has validity over a period of time. I mean, here, here's the first century. They, they, they had the Old Testament. Um, they read of Abraham. They read of Isaac, Jacob. They saw how God liberated the, the people of Israel out of Egypt. He, he saw how he dealt with his people in the book of Judges. You could see how he dealt with his people in the, the book of Luke, in the book of Esther, all the way to Daniel. Um, he's built up some credit, would you say? And here we are in 2023, and we have not just the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, but 2,000 years of church history, and, and, and we, we, we read the scriptures, but we read the biographies, we read the history, all of that. We, we're in a better position than anybody in history to know that our hope is certain, that God's word is sure. That hope is firm and a secure anchor. That, that's his point here. Remember Paul points this out in Romans 4.16. He said, this is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace to guarantee it to all the descendants. That's us. Not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. So again, this hope, it's stable. This hope is solid. Why? Because it is founded on God's promises and God's oh, Will God keep his promise? Absolutely. It's firm. It's secure. It's an anchor. The Puritan Thomas Brooks puts it this way. Hope can see heaven through the thickest clouds. Another Puritan, Thomas Fuller, said this. Hope is the only tie which keeps the heart from breaking. Hope. Hope is what they needed. Hope is what we need. And you have to understand that that hope is certain and sure, but you need your faith strengthened in order to hold fast to that hope. And that's where knowing who Christ is comes. So you notice there it is, it is what? It is firm and is secure. It is firm and it is steadfast. What is it referring to? Well, it is hope. Hope then. Go to verse 19, the second part of verse 19. Hope then does what? It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain. Now talk about a metaphor. What, what curtain are we talking about? This takes us back to Leviticus 16, right? This takes us back to the Day of Atonement. 
where, where they had some security that God was communing with them, that God wouldn't leave them if he found that the, the sacrifice once a year was acceptable. Now, we know the high priest went behind the temple, or behind the veil, rather, in the temple. Here, though, he says, who or what goes behind the veil? Hope does. You see that? Hope enters the inner, that's the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What does that mean? What does that tell you? Whose hope is going behind the inner sanctuary? Your hope. My hope. It is gone entering the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Which means it's gone into the presence of God. Because that's behind the inner sanctuary, behind the curtain. Hope has entered the presence of God. That's what it, that's what it means there. Hope, it has entered the heavenly inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Now, has Christ entered? We'll see in a moment. He has. And Christ is our forerunner. But who's connected to Christ? Or what's connected to Christ is hope. Here's hope. The hope of believers, he says, is an anchor. So we're, we're steadfast and secure. But that same hope has now reached within the veil that brings believers into contact with God himself. Now, I, I know this is a lot to chew on, a lot to grab, to do what you can to, to connect the dots. Let me, let me read you a commentator and see if this helps. He says this, Hope penetrates behind the curtain. That is, believers in hope may now enter where Jesus has already gone in reality into the heavenly sanctuary. Now, by the way, this is a contrast with the old covenant because maybe hope went in there and hope went in there with the high priest. And the high priest came out, but nobody followed the high priest into the inner sanctuary, did they? Every year the high priest would go in, he'd do his thing, and the high priest would come out. Something different going on here. Now, all believers enter the sanctuary, right? And we're told to do that with boldness. Why? Because we have such a hope. We have such a high priest. But the picture here then bringing us to verse 20, is that not just hope has entered, but Jesus, notice verse 20, has entered there. And we began with what's there. There is where? The inner sanctuary. Hope has entered. Jesus has entered. And it's all for who? Our behalf. See that? Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner, as the prodamas, the one who leads us. Now, as I said, this goes then into a long discussion about the order of Melchizedek. But, but, but before you can get there, you, you can't miss the point. And, and, and here, let me just state it again and summarize it to make sure you get it. From verse 18 down to verse 20, here is the point. Very simple. You cannot enter the presence of God without Christ. That's the point. Did you catch that? 
no believer has any right or warrant to obtain access to the presence of God in and of themselves. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get there. No one has. No one will. No one does. No one can access God on their own. You need a mediator. You need a forerunner. You need a pioneer. All the images. Again, it's like a, a diamond that you can just see different facets as you move around who Jesus is. Listen. No one can access God on their own. And listen, not only are you not righteous and holy to do so on your own, but furthermore, accessing God's presence actually requires a mediator. It requires a priest. If you have access to God today, it is because of Christ. It's because of who he is and what he's done, what he's done on the cross Jesus, the writer here says, is our forerunner. He entered there. That, that's what a forerunner does. He entered there on our behalf. Again, it's, it's going back to the high priest of the Old Testament. I mean, he is a high priest. He's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and he's gone in acting as our high priest, but he's also come in with his own blood. So he's not just the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And he's done it all on our behalf. And that's why he ties that with the word forerunner. He's our, and you might have precursor. Again, it implies someone who is following him. And this would have been a new idea. Think about it. All they knew, these first century Jewish Christians, all they knew is that the high priest went in, the high priest went out. The high priest went in, the high priest went out. None of them went in after him. No one was allowed to go into the temple or into the uh, Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. Only the high priest, only one high priest. There were a lot of priests and there were a lot of people, but only one person. This is revolutionary. No one followed him. He wasn't a forerunner. He wasn't a, a pioneer. He just, he just simply represented the people. That's all he did. Now you understand why the covenant is a better covenant. And Christ is a, a, a better mediator of a better covenant. The implication of all this is for them, where are you going to, you're going to go back to Judaism knowing all this? For you, it's where else are you going to go? Do you want eternal life or not? Do you want to have peace with God or not? Where are you going to go to get it? It's all here. And the beauty of the new covenant is where Jesus goes, his people go. The, the, the shepherd speak and the sheep know his voice and they follow him. He doesn't go anywhere where they can't go. He goes to the Father, we go to the Father. You remember in John 20, verse 17, remember what Jesus said to Mary after he rose from the dead. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go find my brothers and sisters. Why? Because I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's all of that to say that's the hope. 
the hope. The hope of believers is anchored in the work of Jesus as the high priest. Again, hope is the anchor. The hope is secure. The hope is firm. The hope is steadfast, is immovable and certain. And why? Because Jesus as our high priest has atoned for our sins and has become our forerunner entering the very presence of God. On our behalf. I love that. He throws that in there on our behalf. He has entered there on our behalf as our forerunner. So the upshot of it all is this. If I could just sum up everything and put it in my own words. Hope is an anchor. It has entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain and has only entered behind the curtain because Jesus has entered beforehand as a forerunner. Did you catch that? Let me say that again. Hope, this is the flow of 18 through, 9, 18 through 20. Hope is an anchor and it has entered the inner sanctuary behind the curtain only because Jesus has entered there beforehand as the what? Forerunner. Beautiful picture there. It reminds me of a hymn, How Firm a Foundation. Remember that hymn? How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? What more can he say? He said it. Jesus is our only hope, our only hope in life. And our only hope in death, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. Let me close. Hopefully you got some of that, if not all of that. Let me close with the words of James Smith. Uh, 1862 says this. Some have no hope, being destitute of the very form of religion. To them there is no God. The Bible is no more than a book of fables. Hell is a fabrication and heaven is but a dream. Millions have a false hope, having only a form of godliness, but being destitute of its power. Some have a good hope through grace, a hope wrought in them by the Holy Spirit, excited and drawn forth by the everlasting gospel and fixed upon invisible realities. This hope always purifies the heart and regulates it, for they hope to be like Jesus when he comes and to be with him forever. And every man who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. This hope prompts the soul to expect great blessings, to aspire to lofty privileges, and to attempt the most difficult duties. This hope protects the man from many dangers and preserves him from many evils. This hope is well grounded on the oath of God, the blood of the covenant, and the pledge of the Holy Spirit. This hope is well tried by Satan in the world without, by unbelief and corruption within, and by God in the dispensation of his providences. This hope is well supported, having for its support all the promises of the word, the experience of the Lord's people, and the glorious character of God. This hope is a lively hope, being full of vigor, buoyancy, and energy, so that it rises above all that opposes its progress and enables its possessor to reach the goal. Well then, he concludes, may the apostles say, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul 
firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. End quote. Well, I trust you have that hope. And if you have that hope, that that hope is exactly what the writer wants you to have, firm and secure, knowing that Christ is our forerunner. Father, we do ask for your help in solidifying all these truths to our heart, help in our understanding, because it is in our understanding that our faith is strengthened and we grow. Thank you for these metaphors that we've seen, both in Category 1 and Category 2, all of them that show us person of who Christ is, but perhaps even more importantly of what Christ has done in his atoning work on the cross. That, that is where our hope lies, that we have salvation because of what he has done. That he has died for us. He has paid our sins. He has atoned our sins so that we may have peace with you. Father, if there's any here this morning that don't have that peace, don't have that hope, may they understand that they do need a Savior. We learned all the way back in the catechism that the results of sin brought separation and that we're all born with original sin. And we know that. We know ourselves. We know the world we live in. There's sin in us and there's sin outside of us. It's everywhere. And the Bible gives us the answer of where it comes from and the Bible gives us the solution of how to get rid of it. And we find it here in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we ask that you would grant salvation to those who don't have it so that their sins can be forgiven the wrath of God may be appeased and that they can be reconciled to you. We ask this for your glory, for their sake. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.